Luke chapter 4, 14 through 22. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So if there are just joining us, maybe for the first time, or you're just back from uh, winter break, uh, we are going through a series on the gospel uh, according to Luke. And the the title of the series is uh, that the lover of God may know. The lover of God may know. Uh, and the reason uh, we, we, we titled it that is, is because of who Luke addresses this book to. He addresses it to a person named Theophilus. Now, what's interesting about uh, the way that Luke writes, Luke is he's adamant about getting the details correct. Um, he wants to write an orderly account, and he wants this to serve almost like testimony in court, to be so accurate. And so when he drops a name or a place or, or anything like that, he's going outside and he's, he's using historical evidence to verify uh, and, and to prove what, what he, he say. Except this name, Theophilus, is only found in one other place, and it's how he begins the book of Acts. Uh, so it's never, not found anywhere else in Scripture, but it's also not found in any historical account outside. And so we're sort of left to wonder who this Theophilus was. Now, it, there, there's, there's one of two possibilities. One is Theophilus was a, um, a, 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 a non-Jewish Christian who probably was a man of means, um, and he may have even supported Luke in, uh, in the formulation of this gospel, that he, he financially supported him as Luke was going around getting eyewitness evidence and testimony from, from people, that he, he, he underwrote that, that sort of uh, ministry. Um, and so that's why Luke addresses it to him. The other possibility, though, is that uh, Theophilus is a pseudonym, that instead of writing to one person, Uh, Luke is writing to a group of people who would best be described as lovers of God. That's what Theophilus means, lover of God, right? Either case, um, this is Luke's point, that the lover of God may know the truth about him. The lover of God may know the truth. What difference does it make that the person who reads the the book of Luke loves God? What difference does it make? Let me uh, illustrate it for you this way. Let's say you buy a house, and you go up into the attic, and you find a a box of possessions left there by the previous owner. And you open up the box, and there inside is a journal. 
And you open up the journal, and, and you could tell the handwriting is uh, it's written by a woman, and you, you, you hear her describe her life. Um, you, you look at the dates, you know she's, she's deceased. Uh, there's no way of getting it to her, so you feel okay looking at it. Um, so you begin to, to read this journal, and you read about her experiences in life. Um, and you read about uh, the, the humorous things that happen to her as, as she's writing these things down. You read about the, the, the sad things that she encounters in life. You, re, you read about the triumphs that she goes through as, as well as the tragic parts. You, you, you read about like the adventures that she has, but also like the really mundane parts of her life. And you get to the end of this journal and what have you got? What have you got? Um, you have a great anecdote uh, to tell at a party, Right? You got, you know, you found a journal and it had some cool story. You got a cool story. Maybe, uh, maybe you got enough there to, you could write a novel about it, you know? You could write a novel based on this person's life and it'd be super interesting and get picked up by Hallmark and made into a movie. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe you're a preacher and you're always looking for sermon illustrations. You're like, finally, here's a book of, of sermon illustrations for me. I'll use this woman's life. That, those are low-down scoundrels who do that. Anyway, but what do you have? You have some cool stories, and that's about it, because you don't know them. You don't know who they were, and you're disconnected from them. Now, what if the house you bought was your grandparents' house? And what if the box of stuff you found was your grandparents, and that journal was your grandmother's, and you loved your grandmother, and she's gone? And so you pick up this journal, and you begin to read about her life, right? The same stories, but she's your grandmother, and you loved her. And so you read about the, the things that she experiences in life. And, and you read about the humorous things that, that happen to, you, to her. And, and you're, you're able to laugh along with them. And, and you know the people that she's writing about. And, and you have you know, the, the, those connections as well. And, and you see her triumphs in life. And you see her tragedies in life. And you, you, you're able to mourn with her to, to a certain degree. You feel that. Right? You, you, you see the, the adventures that she has and you're able to get caught up in those. And, and, and the mundane parts of her life just don't seem that trivial to you because of who they happen to. You have a connection to the one that, that, that wrote this. You know her and you love her. So what difference does that make for you? You have a deeper connection to them. You have a deeper connection and understanding of yourself. And you cherish this. It's not something that, that is just simply a story that you'll just put on the shelf. So if you come to the book of Luke and you're a lover of God and you read about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what difference will that make? What difference will it make? You see, you will walk away changed by it because you're going to encounter him and you're going to encounter who you are in light of him and you're going to cherish it if you're a lover of God. If you're not a lover of God, then what you have is just a nice story. You, you might find that here's a guy who, who was kind to the poor and the oppressed. It's really good stories. Maybe you, you, you listen to his teachings and there's some good moral teachings in there worth listening to. But in the end, it's just a story because you don't have a relationship with who it's about. So here's the plan this morning. We're gonna be in Luke chapter four. And we're going to um, approach this chapter, and then maybe you've ever heard it taught before, but we're going to look at uh, the various characters that we find in Luke 4 and their interactions with Jesus. And we're going to ask the question, are these individuals lovers of God or not? And then we're going to ask some, some follow-up questions, sort of looking you know, through, through the, the, the lines, reading between the lines a little bit. Um, what is their feeling towards 
Jesus? What is their feeling towards God? Um, what, is, what is the fear that's maybe motivating them? What is the want that they want from, from Jesus or from God? And so um, we're going to begin by looking at the temptation of Jesus, um, but we're gonna start uh, by praying, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, I pray this morning that, um, that we would be reminded of how great of love you have for us and that we would love you in response. Would, would you remind us that because of Jesus, you look at us and you are pleased. That you look at us because of Jesus and we are adopted sons and we are adopted daughters and we are in your family and you are not some cosmic being that is unattached and, and, and far away from us. You are present and we can have a relationship with you. And by doing that, we find out who you are and we find out who we are because of you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so um, just to, to try to very briefly uh, catch you up, if this is where uh, you're joining us for the first time, we were in Luke chapter three last week, and it's a very important chapter. Um, we are reintroduced to John the Baptist who steps on the stage and is sort of the opening act for the headliner to come, Jesus. And he's there to get the crowd warm, and he steps onto the stage and he says, I'm here to proclaim a baptism of repentance. And basically what he's doing is he's preaching that we need to turn away from sin, so that we can prepare ourselves to turn to the one who's coming. And he does this by going down into the Jordan River and calls people out to them, and there's this symbolic act of baptizing them, immersing them in water and bringing them out, and this is a picture, an outward picture of what's going on inside these people's hearts as they're embracing this repentance. Well, um, Jesus steps onto the stage, and John sort of hands the mic off, so to speak, and, and John baptizes Jesus. And John goes his way and Jesus takes center stage. But at that baptism, we see something very important. We see the whole Trinity in this scene. And the Spirit of God comes on Jesus like a dove and then we hear the, the voice of the Father from heaven saying, you are my son. In you I am well pleased. And this is significant because no human being in history has ever pleased God. No human being has ever pleased God. We have failed all the way back to Adam. We failed to be who and what he's made us to be. And so Jesus undergoes this baptism and, and we kind of ask him, well, why does he go under the, 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 the baptism? He doesn't need to repent of anything. And Jesus says, I do this so that you can identify with me. I, I am identifying with you in your sin so that you will identify with me in my righteousness when I go to the cross for you. It's about identifying with him and identifying with us and there's this connection that he's making. But, but what happens next is we see the genealogy of Jesus, okay? And the line of Jesus goes all the way back to Adam and the very last verse of Gen or Luke chapter three, which where we picked this morning up, is these words, um, the son of Adam, the son of God. All right, the son of Adam, the son of, of God. And so... Um, uh, this, is, this is where we're gonna pick up in, in Luke chapter four. I'm gonna uh, backtrack a little bit and, and maybe give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going. There's, there's four different individuals or groups that we encounter in Luke chapter four. And uh, the first one is going to be uh, Satan. And uh, the, the second group is going to be the people of Nazareth. And then we're gonna look at a group of unclean spirits. And then the fourth group, the, the people of Capernaum, okay? Um, sorry, I'm going out of order there. Thanks, Steve. Thanks. All right, so... Back to, uh, let, let's dive in. Um, 
It says the son of Adam, the son of, of God. And, and, and Adam, we are reminded of in this passage that Adam, he failed, okay? Um, he is the firstborn of, of, of humanity. God uh, shapes him out of the dust of the ground and breathes life into him, and he is made to, to, to bear God's image. He's made to reflect what God is like to all of creation. And he has a special relationship with God, and it's face-to-face, and, and he's, he's got everything that he needs, and he's got his, his helpmate, and she, too, is, is meant to reflect what God is like to all of creation. But they fail when the tempter steps into the garden or slithers in and tends them to believe some lives especially about God. And so in, in Luke chapter 4, this Jesus, this, this, this other son of God who takes on flesh and comes in, he's going to face the same temptation with the question being, will he fail? And of course, we won't see him do that. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, this temptation of Jesus in Luke uh, functions as sort of a hinge passage. It closes down one point that Luke makes and it begins another point. The first point that Luke wants to make is is regarding the identity of Jesus. Um, Gabriel tells Mary about who her son will be. The angels tell the shepherds. Uh, We see two people in the temple who are identifying Jesus when he's presented at the temple about who he is and what he'll be. We see um, John the Baptist proclaiming who he is. And then we hear the voice of the father proclaiming him to be his son. He's the son of God, he's the Messiah. This is his identity, and there's proof after proof after proof that he is, in fact, the son of God, the Messiah. And it's further proven by his temptation. He goes through this temptation, and he comes out on the other side of it, being the only human being in history to pass the test and be faithful to God, proving he's different than us. He's different. But the second point that that Luke launches into here is what does it look? Having known who God is, what does it look like to love him for who he is? Are you a lover of God? So let's dive in. Really long introduction. Thanks for bearing with me. Verse one, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So we're introduced to this individual, uh, this this adversary, this Satan, um, and, and... we may have already heard of him already. We go back to Genesis and we see that he took the form of a certain and he tempted our first parents, Adam and, and Eve. And so the question we're gonna, we're gonna look at is, is this individual, is this a lover of God? You probably already know the answer to that. Is he a lover of God? Um, but uh, Jesus will encounter um, three tests from this individual and he's gonna come out uh, passing every test with flying colors. But here's the first test and it's the test of, uh, that I would call the test of trust. Uh, Keep reading with me, verse two. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Test of trust. When uh, the the serpent spoke to to our first parents, Adam and Eve, it was about trust. And he he was making the argument that here is something good that you should have, and he has told you you shouldn't have it. Here is something good that will open up your eyes. Here's something good that's beneficial from you. And, and this is something that you should reach out and take. And if he was a good God, he'd let you have it. You can't trust him. You can't trust his goodness. You can't trust his provision. So reach out and take it for yourself. At, at, at the bottom of this test is a test of trust. And this is a test that has been put to every single one of us and every single one of us have failed at one point or another. Do you trust God? 
to provide for you in every way. And this goes way beyond food, way beyond food. Jesus' response to him is that man shall not live by bread alone. It doesn't matter that I'm hungry. Food is not what I need. I need God. I need to trust in him, my father. He passes the test, of course. Verses uh, five now, we'll we'll see the, the second test. I would describe this as a test of worship. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Back in the garden, the serpent's temptation of our first parents was that they could be God. That they didn't need to be under God. They didn't need to be worshipers. They could themselves be objects of worship. They could be worshiped. This is what a Satan has, has, has wanted all along to put his throne above God's throne, to be worshiped. And what he's saying to Jesus is, you worship me, I'll put you in a position to be worshiped. And all of these people will come to you and bow down to you. And what's interesting about that is that Jesus would get that anyway. But here's what Satan is offering him. He's offering him a kingdom without the cross. He's offering him a chance to to be worshipped without having to suffer first. Jesus' response is, once again, fidelity to the Father. You shall worship the Lord your God, in him only shall you serve. Passes the test. We, We have failed the test of worship time and time again. As we have turned to other things and given ourselves to other things and devoted our time and our money to other things other than God. Jesus didn't fail. The third test is what I would call the the test of grace. Look at verse nine. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is bringing us back to something that was written in Deuteronomy, back to an event that happened actually during the Exodus. God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They cried out to God for help. God heard them and God delivered them. God's deliverance was an act of grace. Just so you know, the people languishing in slavery in Egypt, they did not earn God's salvation. They didn't do anything that would specially merit God to to rescue them. It was an act of grace for God to send Moses and deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. It was an act of grace to send them toward a promised land that he would give them, that they would not uh, have to earn. He would just give it to them. It was an act of grace that he he clothed them and he fed fed them. It was an act of grace that he gave them his, this, his law, which would, which would govern them and help them thrive. It was an act of grace that he would create this tabernacle where he would come and dwell among them and his presence would be there. That's all an act of grace. And here are these people, they're putting God to the test. And then at one point at a place called Meribah, they basically say, is God really among us? After they, God has done so much for them, they're putting him to the test. You see, this is what we do. Oftentimes, even people who would call ourselves Christians, we want to find out how far it is that we can go, what it is that we can get away with. We who have received the grace of Jesus, can we still go and sleep with our girlfriend? Can I go and cheat on my taxes? Can can I disregard this person's authority over me? 
What can I get away with under the grace of, of, of God? I, he, he's, he's promised he's gonna do all this for me. What can I get away with? To take the promises of God and sort of twist them so that you can get what you want. Jesus looks at this. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he refuses. Well, the temptation concludes, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. But let's revisit the question. Was Satan a lover of God? No, just blow it for you. No. Absolutely not. We we look at him, and and, and what do we see coming out of Satan? What, What is the feeling that he has? Hatred. On animosity. Jealousy for God. Let me ask you, though. Have you ever felt that way towards God? Second thing to ask, uh, what's the fear there? What's the fear that's driving Satan? Maybe you've never thought of him in that terms of being somebody who is afraid. But he's afraid of losing control. He's afraid of not being recognized or esteemed by the universe around him. He's afraid. Third question, what does he want? Well, let's go back. Have you ever felt those things? Of of losing control, losing authority, losing the respect of people? What does he want? Well, he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be admired. He wants to be exalted and have power and authority. Do you ever want that? Well, let's move on to a a second group of people from Luke 4, the people of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. Uh, This is where he mostly grew up. Go back and look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Um, We are gonna go a a little bit out of order here chronologically. Um, Luke actually wants to end this section of scripture on a happy note. Um, and, and that's why we go to Nazareth next, or why he goes to Nazareth next. He was actually at Capernaum first. He went to Capernaum first, then he went to Nazareth. Chronologically, that's, that's what happened. And, and we know that because of what he says, um, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. If Jesus came straight out of the wilderness and went straight to, de- to Nazareth, we couldn't say that that was his custom. It hadn't been established yet. So he went to Capernaum first. Thanks for tracking with me. Um, if you look at the second part of verse 23, you see that verified. He says, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Okay, so chronologically, he went to Capernaum, then Nazareth. But Luke puts it the other way around because he wants to end on a happy note. We'll get to there. Uh, second part of verse 16. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? All right, so this is what happens. Um, He goes to Capernaum and he does... Uh, the, he, he teaches in synagogues and people listen. 
Uh, he starts healing people, he starts casting out demons, he starts doing all of this, this marvelous, powerful stuff, and news about this has spread, and it's gotten to Nazareth before he gets there. So he gets to his own hometown, he goes into the synagogue, they invite him to be the guest speaker. They hand him Isaiah, and they say, go to town. He looks up the exact verse, verse that he wants to, to, to proclaim to them, he reads it, he sits down, and he says, this is about the Messiah. This was written thousands, hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago by Isaiah, telling us what the Messiah would be like. This is me. I'm the one Isaiah was talking about. And what is their response? What is their response? Um, and all spoke well of him. Now, I don't know about you. If I went to the places of my youth, I went back to my high school, or I went back uh, to, to my old army barracks, I went to those places and they were, let's just say they're all still there. And I went to those places and I say, I'm your savior. I'm the guy who's gonna make everything right. I'm the one who's going to fix it and set it straight. I'm here to deliver you. I would be laughed out of there. No way would they speak well of me. No way. They would look, in fact, they would probably line up in all with their own stories about my past. All of the, the stories that, that, would, that would bring about the shame of the things that I have done. People lining up with a laundry list of stuff that proves that I am nobody's savior. In fact, you don't even need to go back 20 years. You could go back 20 minutes and find people that have seen me mess up. Nobody would stand there speaking well of me after I said, I'm here to deliver you because I'm the Messiah. Nobody would say that. That's not what they're saying. They're speaking well of him. Now, the next thing that they say is, isn't he the son of Joseph? And what they're saying here is, I don't think he's actually the Messiah. I think he's the son of Joseph. I think he grew up here and I think we know him. I don't think he's saying He's being accurate about who he is. Now, here's where you got to read between the lines a little bit. If you were an Orthodox Jew and you heard somebody stand up and say the Messiah and you had reason to believe that they were lying, that's called blasphemy. And you take them outside and you kill them. So here's where they're going to make a compromise. We don't believe you are who you say you are, but we've heard you can do really cool things. So why don't you do those cool things for us? See, they don't see him for who he actually is. They see him for who they want him to be. And they, they, they accept him for what they can get from him. Uh, Jesus understands what's going on in their hearts. Verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We want to see you put on the show. That's what you want from me, Jesus says. You want me to see, you want to see me do cool things for you, even though you don't believe I am who I say I am. He goes on, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he's going to give two examples of the truth of that in the Old Testament. Verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Elijah was not accepted in his hometown either. He had to go to another country in order to do the works of God because he wasn't believed. Same thing with Elijah. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. 
Another example, a prophet not accepted by his own people. And that's me. You don't accept me for who I actually am. You think you know me, but you don't. And this is their response. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It was not Jesus' time to go. It was not time for him to give of his life. He passes through the crowd like they're not even there. But I want you to see what's going on in these people. What's the feeling that they have? Are these lovers of God? What's the feeling? At first, it's astonishment, right? You can do cool stuff, right? And then it's wrath. Oh, you don't want to do the cool stuff. Any of you ever go to Jesus wanting him to do something for you and are disappointed when he doesn't do it and you're angry at him because what's the feeling it's astonishment turned to wrath what's the fear the fear is that they're going to be found out you see here's the thing as a religious righteous person if I compare myself to you then I can look pretty good however if Jesus is standing beside me and I'm compared to his righteousness I look pretty bad the people who would condemn a prophet and not listen to a prophet look pretty bad. They're, 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 they're worried that their unrighteousness and their hypocrisy, which Jesus is constantly calling out in religious leaders, is going to be evident to people around him. So what's the want? Kill him. Murder him. Remove him from the problem. Now, you might be here this morning and say, I'm not like Satan. Right? The way that he encountered Jesus, that's not me. But let me ask you this morning. Are you like the people of, of Nazareth? Do you look at Jesus and you see him for what he can give you? And you want him for what he could provide for you rather than wanting for whom, him for who he is? We've made a mistake in churches where we have said, come to Jesus so you can avoid hell. Come to Jesus so you can have heaven. No, it's come to Jesus so that you can have Jesus. Next group. The third group we encounter are demons. Verse 33. And then at the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Skip down to verse 41. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, but would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Now one might ask, why would Jesus stop them from proclaiming who he was? Doesn't he want people to know? He does, but he wants to reveal who he is. You don't want the demon telling people who you are and what you're like. He wants to reveal who, who he is. You know, that's an important part of love is you want people to accept you for who you are and not try to change you. Do you identify with that? That's, just, that's the same. But what, what about these demons? Are they lovers of, of God? Obviously not. But what's the feeling there? Spite. Spite. Ha! What have you to do with us? Contempt. Malevolence. You ever feel that way towards God? 
What's the fear? Well, it's destruction, it's punishment. They, they know of the impending judgment. But, but do you and I, do we ever look at Jesus and we see him an object of our destruction? An object to, or a person to be avoided? What's the want? To undermine his purpose. They want to derail the mission of Jesus in any way they can. You ever find yourself doing that? Fourth group we're encountering. And here's where we get to the good news, okay? We get to the people of Capernaum. Look down at verse 31 with me. Again, uh, chronologically, uh, Jesus went to Capernaum before Nazareth, but he goes out of order. It says, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Uh, skip again, verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Skip down once more, verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent out for this purpose. So the people of, of, of Capernaum, they encounter Jesus. Are they lovers of God? Now it might be too early to tell. You don't see, hear any of them um, calling him the son of God or anything like that. But we do see something coming out. What is their feeling towards them? Him? Oh, Astonishment. He's teaching. And the words he's teaching, they actually have authority. Meaning, these, these words actually make a difference to me. He's not some guy up, up there just blabbing his mouth. Like what he's saying, actually, it actually affects me and changes me and makes me something else. Like they're astonished at his teaching. But what else? They, 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 they have hope. He's stirring up hope in them. And, and, and they, they can ask, can you heal they see him heal, and they're like, bring everybody who's sick. Like, this is, this is hope that they're experiencing, that, 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 that healing can happen from God. It's hope. But lastly, we see desire. They want him. And when it's time for him to leave, it's like, no, 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 don't go. They want him. And if there's any fear that they experience, it's a fear that, they, that, that he'll, that'll never come back, that, that, that he'll be abandoned, or they'll be abandoned by him. What's the want? The want is simply him. They want him. They want him. You see, are you a lover of God? And you might be here this morning saying, I'm not exactly sure what that means. When you think about God, are you in awe of him at all? Are you astonished by what he's done? Does he provide you with any hope? Is there desire for him or for, for his ways or for, for anything of him? Are, are, are you, are, do you want him so bad that the idea of losing that relationship would be the worst thing that could happen, even though that's not possible if you're in him? Do you want him? Let's look at Jesus 
does Jesus love the Father? Is Jesus a lover of God? And you look at the temptations and you see someone who he trusted the Father, he worshiped the Father, that he demonstrated what fear of the Lord actually looks like in his relationship with people. He loved the people of, of Nazareth enough to tell them the truth even though it would cost him. He loved the people of Capernaum to, to, to teach them the truth and to lay his hands on them and, 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 and to cure like that there's a man who loves the Father and loves his people and his whole life is demonstrated towards that. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it looks like to be a lover of God, and you should look to him for that. So what do we do with all this? First of all, if you're here and you would say, I'm not sure that I am a lover of God. Okay. You want to talk about it? Look, if you would be here to say, and like, I look at my, my honest feelings towards God, and there's a lot of negative stuff there towards him, and maybe, maybe, they might not be accurate. You know what? I'd love to talk to you. If you would be here this morning and you would say, you know, um, I, I'm afraid that if I come to God, I'll be rejected by him. Maybe you would, you would say the opposite. Maybe you say, if, if I come to God, um, he'll expect me to change something that I want to change. There's some fear there. You know what? I've been there. love to talk to you about that. If you, would, if you would be here this morning and you, you would say, like, I, I want something from God. There's a hole in my life I need him to fill. There's a, an area that I need to be rescued and sal- saved and redeemed. I would love to talk to you about that. If you're here this morning and you say, I don't know if I am a lover of God, but I'm open to the idea. Come talk to me, please. I'll be standing right over here after the gathering's over. You, you, you can email me. My thing's on the website. Like, you can get a hold of me somehow. If this is too uncomfortable for you, Find a way to get a hold of me somehow. If you are here this morning and you would say, I am a lover of God. I love God. I recognize what he's done for me. I recognize the lengths that he's gone to get me. Because I was rebellious. Because I did reject him. Because I don't trust him at times. And, and, and I've turned and worshipped anything else but him. I've worshiped myself. And you know what? There have been times when I've tried to, 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 to go as far as I possibly could, stretch his grace, just assuming that he would always take me back. And, and, and he will, but, but, but I, I've done it in a rebellious way. Like, if you were here this morning and you would say, I know what Jesus has done for me. I know how he's identified with me. I know how he's exchanged his, his righteousness for my sin. Like, I am a lover of God then I want you to respond with me through the act of communion. Communion is, is a symbolic act of what's, of what's going on in, inside. And so here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna explain the elements to you a little bit, and then I'm gonna walk you through three questions. Three questions re- re- regarding uh, your time spent with God before you partake. Then there's gonna be a, an awkward silence as our worship team also goes through this. Silence is not a bad thing, all right? And then when you're ready, partake and sing. But let's talk about the elements. The night before Jesus was died, he took bread. And he tore it apart and he gave it to his disciples. He says, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. And before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. This bread is, is in, in, in the tabernacle, it was called the bread of the presence. It is a symbol of God with us that if you are in Christ Jesus he is in you you are never far you are never apart from him 
The second element is, is juice, symbolizes the, the, the cup that Jesus drank the night before he died. And he said, this cup is, is a symbol of my blood being poured out for you that gives you a new relationship with God. It's called a new covenant. And because of my blood being poured out for you, I'm gonna take on your sin. I'm gonna give you my righteousness. The wrath of God is gonna come down on me. And when God looks at you from here on out, he's going to see my righteousness in you. And because of that, the the divide between you and the Father is going to be torn down. It's gonna be removed so you can boldly walk into the presence of God the Father. Do you understand this morning that if you were in Christ, that his blood poured out for you, that that exchange that has been, makes you righteous before God, and you can boldly enter into where God the Father is, and there he stands saying, you're an adopted son and I am pleased with you because of what Jesus has done for you. You're an adopted daughter, and I am pleased with you because of what Jesus has done for you. I look at you, and I see the righteousness of my son, and so you can walk into his presence because of the blood of Christ. And here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to remind yourself that you're in that presence right now and ask this first question. What is your feeling towards God? What are you feeling towards him this morning? What's going on in your heart He is not some deity that's off somewhere. He's he's not distant. He's close. He's here. You're in his presence. This is a relationship that you get to have with your creator. Can you honestly deal with your feelings with him? You think about when you go on a date with your spouse, it's a good opportunity to, to deal with your feelings with one another and for one another. Remind each other of the love that you have. It's a good opportunity to remind you of the second question. What are you scared of right now? What is, what is your fear? Can you deal honestly with what the fears that are in your heart with God? Do you think he's gonna shrink back from that? Do you think anything, anything about your fears that's gonna bother him? Lastly, what do you want? I'm not talking about going to Jesus like he's some genie in the bottle. I'm talking about going to him like he is the God of the universe who is your savior, who has already met your biggest need. Going to him and saying, I need again, I want. Will you fill that? Will you fill that? We have a God who has done everything to restore that relationship that Adam and Eve once enjoyed. And one day that'll be fulfilled and we'll get to spend eternity. And when you get to heaven, It's not, yay, look at all the possessions or the cool stuff I get to have. You get to heaven, you say, I get to have Jesus. I get to have him. Are you a lover of God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, Thank you for for the love that you have poured out, literally poured out. You have done everything. It's accomplished. And because it is accomplished, you sit right now at the right, home, throne, right hand of God the Father. It's done. It's finished. And you have, have made a way for us to once again enter into the presence of God. I pray that we would be a people that love you, not for what you can give us, not for what you can do for us, but we would love you because you loved us first. We would love you accurately for who you've already told us you are. But help us to love you 
And in light of that love, love one another. We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.